0: Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us here on the Conversation Hawaii Talks. It is Tuesday, February 6. Hawaii Public Radio's president and general manager Jose Fajardo announced this month that he is stepping down at the end of July. His battle with ALS is behind his decision. He joins us live in studio this morning. We hear more about the state's push to provide more mental health services to those in crisis. We learn about how Hawaii's Counselor Corps was tapped following the Maui wildfires, and it marks its 200th anniversary this year. And it has been 50 years since the last lighthouse keeper said goodbye to the Makapu Lighthouse when it became automated. He recently paid a visit to the facility that he called home for three years. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. HPR's President and General Manager, Jose Fardo, recently announced he will be stepping down at the end of July. He's been the head of our station since May 2016. And during that time, HPR has expanded its state network of transmitters, invested in news and digital content, and has strengthened its financial standing. Jose was diagnosed with ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, in 2021 and in spite of his battle with the neurodegenerative disease he still comes into the office and he joins us in the studio this morning good morning Jose
1: good morning Catherine
0: you know uh, I have to say it was an emotional day for all of us here at HPR when you you shared the news about your decision yeah
1: it was a very difficult decision for me to make um, I've been in radio and actually television For 40 years Um, it was a career that I fell in love with when I was about eight years old I knew I wanted to be in radio so I was able to fulfill my dream and um, while my mind is still sharp and my passion is still strong my I came to the realization that my body just was not allowing me to do what I wanted to do. My uh, uh, energy level, which uh, ALS um, reduces, made me just tired um, just doing simple things. Um, So it was a decision that I started thinking about around November. Um, And then in December, I had an emergency surgery for a non-ALS-related issue. um, And uh, that added some complications. So I talked to my board and informed them uh, that I would be stepping down in July. I had told them um, when I was diagnosed that when the time came, I would provide them with a six-month notice um, to provide for a smooth transition. So that's what I kind of started the process uh, with my announcement.
0: Well, I know I had a number of our listeners reach out to me, and they were just very moved by your letter that went out to all our members. You know, they just said it was just so well written and just from the heart.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, from day one, Catherine, um, I've been very transparent about uh, my disease, my diagnosis. I've been on the conversation, talking about it several times. I have a blog, com, that I keep people up to date. And so I thought it was important to, that once I made the decision and informed the board, and the staff to also inform our major donors, our donors in general, and our listeners as we're doing today, um, because it's important I think to keep the conversation going about ALS and the impact it has. It's now robbing me of my passion of radio and something that I've always have loved to do. Um, and so while my career will be coming to an end, I hope that I find something else to do. The board has talked to me. We haven't made a final decision about keeping me active with the station in some capacity perhaps you've been sweeping the floors i'll (laughs) just find a way to do that
0: (laughs) you keep your sense of humor you know through all this and Uh, and you know all of us here at at hpr uh, do appreciate um that fact uh because we love you you know we've seen the progress uh that we have made over the years you know uh, Thank you for hiring me. I've been here, you know, be close to seven years, and I have just seen, you know, the news department uh, become strong. You know, every year, right? You know, and oh gosh, we've
1: done a lot. I mean, one of the first things that I was able to do was complete our statewide network by activating the Hilo transmitter, and then purchasing a station um, in uh, Molokai actually Lanai to service West Maui, that we renamed KJHF um, on behalf of John Henry Felix. But the most important change was the program realignment when we were able to move all the news programs to HBR1 and make HPR 2 a classical music station. That helped us really elevate and increase our audience increase our revenues we're now um, we're a very um, Financially sound station with surpluses that are able to invest in capital And reinvest in people we have done a really good job of elevating compensation for our team and retaining talent and like you um, and uh, putting in of fifty thousand dollar investment in scholarship funds for our staff to go to training and conferences um and i'm very proud of my time here at HPR. we have a great team a great staff we do really good quality work when it comes to local news i mean just yesterday you were in maui yes you know and so you know we're 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 we are where we're supposed to be
0: well driving around maui uh i had to smile because you know i programmed hpr into the rental car and was able to listen to our signal and i thought of john henry felix and the station the transmitter and uh you know knowing that uh our signal was really strong over yeah. there it 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 just made me smile I was really happy
1: yeah i'm really happy about that because you know um our We're separated by oceans and mountain ranges and volcanoes and valleys. And it's really difficult to do radio in Hawaii. And it's because of the support from our listeners over the years that we've been able to invest in our infrastructure to be able to bring our quality programming from Kauai all the way to Hilo, and all points in between.
0: You know, I have to say that when I started here, I was a little scared of doing the call shows, but then that has become really a bright spot because I just love to hear from everyone from across the state, you know. They, yeah. they are really engaged, and um, I just love the audience.
1: Yeah, and to hear the diversity of voices um, when, you, when we do the call-in programs um, really is a highlight for me. Because we're not Hawaiian public radio, or Hawaii public radio, and we embrace Hawaii. We embrace the local culture. We embrace our local community. And that is part of our mission and vision to be connected to our community in ways that impact our community. Um, in beneficial ways
0: yes and and being there in Maui it was so easy to you know talk to people you know because there are members and right. and uh, they have confidence and trust in uh, in our reporting and uh, yeah very proud uh, to <laughs> represent Hawaii Public Radio you know there on the neighbor islands
1: yeah and uh, I am very proud of everyone's work and uh, I'll be here through July 31st. The board will be doing a national search, um, and uh, uh, they'll uh, hopefully be hiring um, someone who can take the station to the next level. Um, hopefully, I've left the station in good hands. What are your
0: hopes for HPR?
1: Um, to continue to grow, to continue to um, Be engaged with our community, um, and to be ready for whatever the future is for public media, because it's the landscape will be changing, and I think we're in a good position to be ready for those changes.
0: Well, Jose Fajardo, we thank you for all you have done uh, for uh, for us here at Hui Public Radio, for our state, for all our listeners. Uh, and we are sad that you'll be stepping down, but we know that uh, you have left us a stronger place and one of uh, nominated for one of the uh, best places to work. (laughs) That's
1: right. Thank you, Catherine.
0: Thank you so much. We have been hearing from Jose Fajardo, president and general manager of Hawaii Public Radio, who just announced last week that he plans to step down at the end of July after eight years at the helm.
1: Do you love public
2: radio? Would you like to join the team that puts your favorite HPR programs on the air?
1: We may have the perfect job for you. HPR is hiring a full-time board operator. Audio editing and broadcasting experience are required, and skills as an on-air announcer are a plus. If this job opportunity is
2: music to your ears, visit hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs to learn more.
0: Today on The Daily, the explosive allegations that workers from a crucial U.N. relief agency participated in the October 7th attacks stunned the world late last month, what the accusations mean for Gazans, and for Israel's war strategy. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's Today on The Daily from The New York Times.
2: Beginning this afternoon at 1.30...
0: This month marks the 200th anniversary of Councilor Corps Hawaii. It's a big deal for those who have been involved with the organization, as it is one of the oldest in the islands. We talked to Dennis Sale, Honorary Council for Germany, and Eni Shiro, Honorary Council for the Island of Tonga about its history. Saleh starts us off.
3: We go back further than most other organizations in Hawaii. I think we play a pivotal role in the international community. Of course, 200 years ago, The consul corps was small. We had two members in the beginning, the American consul and the British consul. Now we're at about 35 to 38, depends on who's coming and going. That's been the number for many decades now. And I think the community has grown tight together. We meet at least once a month, if not more, and it's proven to be a really good resource for everybody. So it's a big deal for us Mm -hmm. to have that anniversary.
0: And then Annie, jump in here, because I understand there's an event that's coming up on the 10th?
4: Yes, on Saturday, the 10th of February at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel. We'll be celebrating the 200th anniversary, as well as I'll be installed as dean for just one year. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we felt that it was nice to have a Pacific Island country represented. I've been representing Tonga for a number of years now and it's an honor to do this and to highlight, spotlight Tonga. Well for
0: those of us, for our listeners who may not understand the structure, what does it mean to be a dean of a counselor corps like this?
4: So usually on counselor corps, The service for dean is by longest term, so ours is a little different. We alternate between a full consul, which would be like a consul general from Australia, New Zealand, Japan, eight countries, and then we alternate the next year with an honorary consul, and that keeps things interesting.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Of course, Annie is really been the dean of the consular corps for decades
0: no, no, that's in the background <laughs> behind the scenes, she is okay.
3: <laughs> um, our backbone and so it's so awesome that she finally gets to be the dean and I'm extremely happy to see that happen
0: well you know I think we have seen a lot of emphasis on the Pacific and it's probably high time because there are issues facing our islands uh, that need to be brought to the forefront It's a conversation, I think, that is important to elevate.
4: Yes, and I think it was highlighted during COVID, and we saw the disparity with many Pacific Island countries having higher incidence of COVID and not having supplies or the vaccinations available in their language so people could understand. So I think community health workers were key then that spoke language and they were trusted sources Then that also came about in Lahaina you saw the same thing after the fires there where the small island communities there were devastated and the support was available through FEMA Red Cross and that but the language gap was very evident so there were organizations like Papa Ola Lokahi that brought some of our consulates together and so we would go and do these outreaches in Lahaina at the Civic Center and other locations where we could have um, language speakers available, so helping people through that process. Yes, because there were Tongan families are affected. And I believe one fatality. Family, yes, yes,
0: yes a, a young child, I think. About oh, it was the problem, right? actually
4: her parents, the mother and child, so four in that family Oh parish. gosh,
0: and I, I believe the princess. Tonga came for that.
4: Yes, and that was an amazing thing that she went, because when she came here for another reason, she wanted to comfort the people there. So she made a quick trip over, and actually the funds that she raised were given to me to get replacement passports, birth certificates, and other documents that the community needed right away. So when people were calling around to ask how much it costs, I said, if you were devastated by the fire, it's free. Yeah, well, I think... Dennis, that probably just
0: underscores the need for organizations like the CORE to exist to help people during times of need.
3: Yeah, we, we really do see that in moments of crises the most. Some of us are more put in the spot such as Annie, because of the size of the community here, but also because she really is the focal point in many cases. The German community, as an example, we have about 3,000 people on the islands. And during the Lahaina crisis, on top of that, about 80 tourists that we had to ship out, whose passport were stuck in Kaanapali. And so in those moments, you feel that you're in a position where you can help people out a lot.
0: Yeah, you're really doing a service.
3: We also connect in those moments because a lot of the information transfer in crises is not funneled directly to all of us at the same time. And then one of us or two of us become information hubs and we disperse it to the others so that the entire international community has access to pertinent stuff.
0: And so list off maybe some of the larger communities here that often tap the consular Corps?
3: I mean we have 35 to 38 nations represented. I think the bigger ones are the Pacific Islanders, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Japan of course is the probably the largest consulate on the islands with yeah. Philippines. Um, the six largest are Philippines, uh, the, the Commonwealth nations and Japan, Korea, Taiwan has a representative here. They're not called consulate, but mm-hmm. they also are very active in the community. So I think that's the bulk, and and of course between the Philippines and Japan, you probably are talking about tens of thousands.
4: If you
0: can talk about you know the work that you folks do and the history of Hawaii and King Kalakaua and you know during the Hawaiian Kingdom, he had set up consulates around the world. So explain how that all worked at that time compared to what we've got you know in place now.
3: The Hawaiian monarchy had an extensive consular network in the world. I think at some point it was as much as 130, 140 uh, consular representatives uh, across the world. Of course, Hawaii was trying very hard to leave a substantial footprint, especially amongst the other monarchies in the world, to achieve parity. So they spent a lot of money and time doing this after 1893 of course that was history and I think it uh, then became more evident that there is a need inside of Hawaii for consulate representation and a lot of the countries had established that prior so Germany for instance had a consulate in uh, the monarchy era Um, uh, the other ones too I don't know uh, how many existed exactly during the monarchy time but um, During territory, republic, and then later um, being the 50th state, we we got up to 30. So there's these two eras. There's the time when um, we also had a Hawaiian consular service outside of Hawaii, and now we only have our inward-focused representatives.
0: And, you know, Annie, talk about, I guess, what is it that is so gratifying for you, you know, when you serve in this position, you know, representing uh, the people of Tonga?
4: So it's an amazing job, and I'm really thankful for it. Each day is different because you can have a range of visitors from maybe their majesties coming in, and then you're doing working with Secret Service or something like that. Then you could have another day where you're visiting OCCC to see an inmate who's having trouble. You know, so it's, you, you do all kinds of things, so it's never boring, <laughs> and each day is sort of exciting to face. If I can throw back to something. So actually in Tonga in eighteen fifty five, the Hawaiian consul Alexander Blake was the first resident Hawaiian um, foreign country to be resident in Tonga and that was eighteen fifty five. Wow. So. Interesting. Yeah,
0: yeah so it, it is it's amazing history when you kind of can go back and, and reflect on mm-hmm. I think time.
3: Germany had five Hawaiian representatives at some point wow. in the 19th century, which is amazing. Yeah.
0: And then, uh, gosh, so so the organization meets how often, and what are some of the common
4: issues that you folks talk about? So we try to meet once a month, at least. And we try to focus on issues that will be interesting for the council. So we've had, in the past, um, representatives from law enforcement, from um, immigration, from um, FBI, HPD, and then also different organizations that are international, UH, HPU, Chaminade, East-West Center, so different organizations like that. And sometimes we take excursions out. We visited the um, emergency center at
3: we try to, you know, think about what faces us as a community and try to educate the members. A lot of this is also about short and fast response options. So you want to know who is doing what in town that, so that you can reach out when needs arise. That's really helpful. When there's, you know, especially when you have crisis times, um, it's hard to get information and to relay stuff to the right person quickly, unless you know who it is already. So the State Department has representatives that we work with directly, FEMA, and, and it helps to know who those people are. So we sometimes just invite them to talk to us and then connections are created.
0: And so how does someone get to sit and get to join the Counselor Corps? I mean, I know, you know, one of our founding members, John Henry Felix, was on the uh, uh, Counselor Corps for many years. But how how does that work?
3: Well, I think there is not a direct path to becoming a consul unless you join the Foreign Service in your country and are then stationed here. That's for the uh, consul generals who are doing this professionally. For us honorary consuls, we are here when we get picked. So we're not sent. And I think every country has its own way to select the person they would like to uh, represent them. Uh, in my case, it was a long journey, really. It took many years before I finally got this position. Um I don't know how it is for you, Annie. How, how do you uh, get selected in Tonga?
4: So, basically, I think I'm the only honorary right now. We have full consulates in San Francisco, and then we have our UN or our embassy, which is based in New York, um, at the United Nations. So, all consuls for the consulate corps have to be um, approved by the U.S. State Department. So the Office of Foreign Mission goes through and, and approves that, and then they can apply for membership with the concert corps. Um, then we do have associate and affiliate memberships as well.
0: Okay, so there's different paths.
3: Yeah, there's a professional path and the honorary path, and those are somewhat different. I think it's important to know that you have to be accepted by your ascending nation, meaning the country that you're representing, and by the uh, American State Department. So both have to agree to your position.
0: Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners about the event to mark this 200th anniversary?
3: I think it's a a wonderful part of Hawaiian history, especially because it is such an old organization. We really put a lot of effort into it. The Royal Hawaiian Hotel has been hosting us for so many years now, and we're so grateful for that because it is one of the most remarkable locations for this type of event. You know, they they deck out the lawn for us. The Royal Hawaiian band will be playing. We have uh, some cultural acts every year that represent the nation. So Annie will be bringing a very special singer to our inaugural gala this this year in February. And a lot of people just enjoy a really nice black tie Ooh. event. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, and I think they are willing to help our organization with whatever it takes to make it happen.
0: All right. Well, we thank both of you for coming down and sharing the story of the Counselor Corps. And happy 200th anniversary. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. That was Dennis Saleh and Annie Shiro, Honorary Councils for Germany and Tonga, respectively. Councilor Corps Hawaii marks its 200th anniversary with a gala on Saturday at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel. Find out more on the conversation page of our website later today. In 2021, NASA proved that human beings can still do big things when they flew a helicopter on Mars. Altimeter data confirms
3: that ingenuity has performed its first
1: flight.
0: Ingenuity lasted longer and sent back more data than anyone ever expected, so we'll talk about all we can learn from the little copter that could. That's on the next On Point.
2: Beginning this afternoon at 2, following
1: The Daily. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Nikki
0: Scully, author of Sekhmet, Transformation in the Belly of the Goddess. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about Egyptian Alchemy of Transformation.
3: Sunday morning at 11.
0: This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Oni hoa, ole hua, oni hao, o umau, <laughs> guai, o We have an interview with Hawaii's last lighthouse keeper coming up in the show. So for today's quiz, we're looking at ocean navigation the way it used to be. These days, ships use satellite GPS systems to find their way around the world to their destinations. But back in the day, being able to see a lighthouse was critically important. One very specific Hawaii lighthouse guided and protected thousands of ships for over 50 years between 1910 and 1960. During that time, it was the key to safe passage through a narrow inner island channel whose maritime traffic averaged a 1,000 ships a year. It is the tallest lighthouse in Hawaii, and in its time, it was the brightest light in the Pacific. Pacific. Its light could be seen more than 21 miles out to sea. Our backyard quiz question for today is twofold. Where was this lighthouse and what special property did it have that allowed it to be seen for such a distance? Call 808-941-3689 or toll free 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HBR tote bag and we'll illuminate you with the answer later in the show.
2: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Narete Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii.
0: Crisis Center focused on mental health is set to open on Oahu soon. It aims to provide care without sending people to jail or to the hospital. HPR reporter Ashley Mizuo joins us to talk about the concept behind these behavioral health crisis centers. Good morning. Good
5: morning. Um, Yeah, so it's called a behavioral health crisis center. Um, It's meant to help people having a mental health crisis and you know the goal there is to alleviate the pressure for for law enforcement and in emergency rooms. Um, People suffering from mental illness make up only about 4% of our general population, but 17% of people in jail have serious mental illness, and over 70% of those with serious mental illness in jail also have substance abuse issues. Um, Queens Hospital alone sees over 400 emergency department visits related to behavioral health every year. Um, So right now, if a law enforcement officer finds someone on the street suffering from an acute mental health crisis, Um, They would call on the mental health uh, emergency worker for an evaluation and that worker, which is contracted through Queens Medical Center, and they direct law enforcement to take them to the hospital if that's necessary. So the crisis center now becomes another option. Um, it was adopted from a model used in Arizona um, that's seen um, a lot of success. Um, over there, law enforcement officers in Phoenix have a guaranteed drop off time at one of these centers within 10 minutes. Um, Dr. Chad Koyanagi, he's the department's mental health division's medical director for Crisis Continuum. Um, and, you know, he says that having this type of a crisis center. Um, would allow law enforcement to have a place where they can quickly drop someone off an emerg- in an emergency and you know they would have the facility and they would know that the facility and staff are enthusiastic about wanting to receive um, that patient. Uh, yeah, so, so basically what you end up doing, sorry, basically what you end up doing is saving the system a lot is what he says so so basically what he, he told me was that you know you end up saving the system a lot of time by, um, by, by sending them to one of these um, behavioral center uh, centers uh, because you um, people sometimes overutilize utilize the system who go to the ER very often and and so maybe some of these patients shouldn't be going to the to the ER and they could go to somewhere like um, the crisis center where they could get more desirable care there. Yeah, I mean, it's hard when you see someone on the
0: streets having a mental breakdown, you know, or a psychotic episode, because you often hear things like that that come across the scan or altered mental status is, I think, how the police refer to it. And you know that, yeah, something's not right. and And you want to get them help as soon as you can.
5: Right. And, you know, the, the patients would only stay at one of those crisis centers for up to 24 hours, and it's meant to provide a more home environment setting versus a hospital, but still provide recovery care and trauma-informed specialists. They would have on-site nurses, psychiatric providers, and caseworkers, and then they would discharge them to community resources. Um, and so right now the state is leasing the city's evil a resource center for the facility Um, they've contracted with the service provider cares hawaii and there to start will be about eight chairs for people to receive care and they'll really focus on taking in suicidal patients who are brought in by police or call the 988 Cares Crisis Helpline. Um, and it can scale up from there from accept to accepting walk-ins and helping with other, other mental illnesses potentially as the project kind of moves along. Um, it's important to note that, that the Behavioral Crisis Center is not supposed to be a place just to drop off people who are homeless, nor is it a place for pre-jail or post-jail diversion. Um, of course, there's some elements of that in this, but that's not the directed purpose. Um, so um, it's not as if people who are committing crimes would be going to the Behavioral Health Crisis Center. Um, here's Dr. Koyonagi again.
2: As we see how things progress when we open the facility, uh, the volume of patients, how long they tend to stay, and, and the, you know, the percentage capacity that we're using. If we find out we're doing much better and can service a greater cross-section of patients, then we'll expand the eligibility criteria to other populations
0: so you know how, this is uh, being started by the
5: state health department is that right Yep, yeah, the health department right and you know this is just a piece that's going to fit into one of their many many um, services for adult mental health division um, so they there's basically four different types of categories for treatment there's the recovery slash support which is ongoing and that's going to be peer coaching clubhouses supported education there's supportive living, which could last up to two years, and that's clean and sober homes, transitional housing, and then of course there's treatment, which lasts about 30 days. And so this really falls into that other bucket, which is called crisis, um, which is short-term. You know, they categorize this as three to 10 days, even though the Behavioral Crisis Center would be 24 hours. But this category kind of also includes um, the 9 and 8 CARES hotline, mobile outreach, stabilization beds, and then now this Behavioral Health Crisis Center. Um, Oahu has the highest need um, as 52% of patients that the DOH um, Department of Health Adult Mental Health Division serves, then Hawaii Island, Maui, and then Kauai. Um, According to DOH, uh, Oahu would need 54 crisis receiving chairs, currently has zero, um, soon to be eight. Uh, Oahu also has a strong need for short-term crisis beds. It only has 16 when they say the need is 46. And the county of Hawaii would need 11 crisis-receiving chairs, Maui 9, and Kauai 6. Yeah, so it's interesting. There. There's chairs and then there's beds. So beds is more of long-term
0: kind of treatment, and chairs is more like just drop in and deal with the right. crisis situation.
5: Yeah, the stabilization beds. They're not necessarily like long-term, long-term in terms of like you'll be there for like a month, but mm-hmm. a couple of days. This these, The chairs that they're talking about is these 24-hour, um, just where, you know, they could treat them really quickly and then move them on to wherever else they need to go. Um, so yeah, um, the legislature has been really focused on this topic um, because a bill to fund these types of centers, the behavioral health centers, um, actually failed last session. It didn't get funding, and um, but in the interim, the Department of Health used about over a little over $2 million in federal Amer- American Rescue Plan funding to open this A loca- location. Um, Governor Josh Green this year has requested an additional $6.7 million from the legislature to continue to fund these crisis centers and other supporting housing services. Um, and lawmakers are really closely watching the progress of this a crisis center because they want the results of this first behavioral crisis center to inform how they should build more of them. Um, And so they are also hearing a bill this session that would fund two more of these behavioral health crisis centers. So um, Representative Della Abelotti at uh, yesterday's informational briefing, uh, they discussed the A behavioral health crisis center and this is what she said.
4: We wanna track the physical renovations that might be needed and making sure that the operations are moving quickly so that we can move in parallel and that this pilot project which has been illustrated as we desperately need by the slides that you've provided that we are moving forward with it because governor's team has the flexibility and the money to do this. And then we're also moving bills to help support this process.
5: So during yesterday's hearing, um, informational hearing, Representative Abelotti, as well as Senator uh, Benventura, Ventura, uh, they were really hammering in on, um, you know, the governor's office as well as the Department of Health to really come up with these types of solutions to help people suffering from, se- from severe mental illness. Um, and and this is just going to be another big piece of that. Right. Did they say we're on the neighbor islands they might consider uh, well, the next one? They're thinking either, they're trying to decide it's all dependent on need, and so they're saying either West Oahu or a neighbor island, they're trying to figure out which would be more appropriate. So this bill to build more of them um, is going to be held for decision tomorrow in um, Representative Abaladi's Health and Homelessness Committee.
0: Okay, all right, we'll see uh, uh, where this goes. Uh, But you've got to try something, right? And and hopefully uh, they're successful. We have been talking to HPR's Ashley Mazuo about behavioral health crisis centers. You can read more about it on our website, HawaiiPublicRadio.org.
3: Stephen Dubner, on the next Freakonomics Radio, could a new set of rules restore trust to academia? These
1: are not one-off cases. You have to fix it.
3: But is academia even capable of changing? I think that my generation fought against the open science movement for far too long. The hidden side of academic fraud. That's next time
4: on Freakonomics Radio.
2: Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin... Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com.
0: It's now time to illuminate the backyard quiz answer. Earlier, we asked you about a lighthouse that lit up a narrow and treacherous inter-island channel. The structure was located at Kalau Papa on Molokai and was built. In 1909, fear of Hansen's disease from the Kalapapa settlement had kept officials from building a lighthouse earlier at the site. It was only when Molokai came under the jurisdiction of the U.S. 12th Lighthouse District after annexation that construction was ordered. The Kalapapa Lighthouse is the tallest lighthouse in the islands, rising 120 feet. You have to climb up 189 steps to reach the top. The light from the top shone for 21 miles. It had a specific feature that was rare at the time—a Fresnel lens, a device that uh, Fresnel lens rather, a device that allowed an electric light beam to travel farther and shine brighter than any uh, previous design. Uh, the tower is now on the National Register of Historic Places and still serves as an inspiration for art, music, and the daily lives of people in Kalapapa. We have no winners today, but that's our quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. This year marks 50 years since the Makapu Lighthouse became automated. Ron Chanferani was the final lighthouse keeper back when it was under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Coast Guard. He returned to Hawaii recently and was given a VIP tour of the lighthouse, honoring his service and his part in lighthouse history. The retired Coast Guard Petty Officer now lives in Rhode Island and recalled getting the plum assignment here in the islands.
2: Well, when I received my orders, it said uh, 14th Coast Guard District, which is Hawaii uh... tentative assignment officer in charge of mockable point light station and i had never been stationed at a light station before i had no clue uh... i really didn't know a heck of a lot about hawaii except it was beautiful so i contacted the officer in charge of the station and he sent me some photos and i couldn't believe it i mean, the place was absolutely gorgeous So i was overseas at the time so i sent the photos to my wife. She was very excited. And uh, we ended up going there. It was an unbelievable three years. It was pretty isolated. I had two children while we were there, twin girls and a son. And the girls don't remember any of it because they were, they were born there. My son was uh, about around five, so he, he remembers a little bit of it. And he's been actually back there. We had a great time. We used to go down to the tide pools, which is about halfway down that road. We could park along the side and and hike down. I used to have to carry him up because he was pretty <laughs> young. But uh, we used to swim in the tide pools. Uh, there's a huge blowhole down there. I believe it's illegal to go down there now. Yes, yeah, too dangerous. Yeah, it's too dangerous of a walk. But we used to do it.
0: Well, now, did <laughs> and, uh, you actually did you actually live there?
2: There were three homes there. Two of them were three, two three-bedrooms, and one was a two-bedroom. So I had two other gentlemen living there with their families. Wow. And we, we, did, uh, we, did, we maintained the light, obviously, kept the grounds in beautiful shape, had an office, a garage, an emergency generator room in case the light did go out. Believe it or not, we got our water from a pump down at Sea Life Park. It would be pumped up to the top of the hill. Gravity down to a, uh, it was probably a two, 3,000 gallon water tank, and then gravitated right into our homes. It was kind of interesting.
0: Well, now, did the light at the lighthouse ever go out?
2: No, it, it never went out. We had, uh, we had a, it's called the lamp changer, and which had two bulbs on it, 2,000 watt bulbs. And if one of the bulbs went out, it would automatically replace it with the other bulb. So uh, we never had a problem with that. No, nope, not in the three years I was there.
0: So what was that like? I mean, knowing that you were really the beacon of hope for mariners out there on the water.
2: Um, uh, kind of took it for granted, really. I mean, it was it was just so nice up there. I mean, uniform of the day, shorts and flip flops. <laughs> it, it was it was private back then. I, yes, we had a gate at the bottom of the hill. There was there was no parking lot for tourists. We had a little gate shack down there where if any of our friends wanted a visit, they would have to ring. We had a crank phone down there, and it would ring up to the three homes, and whoever was on duty would answer the phone to find out if someone was coming down, because if someone was coming down, you weren't going to go up at the same time. As you know, that road is narrow.
0: Well, now, and, uh, you have since returned to Hawaii to visit the lighthouse, but this particular trip marked fifty years since you yeah. were last manning uh, the facility, and you know the Department of Land and Natural Resources has put in uh, quite a penny to improve access to that area. What did you think they about sh- that?
2: They sure did i I was highly impressed It's really great for tourists now the road is the road has improved uh, probably 100%. I know you can't drive up there, but that's, that was our mode of transportation. We drove up that hill every day, probably, and uh, I think I could do it blindfolded. Yeah, but it was a sketchy trail. It was sketchy, yeah, but, you know, we got used to it. I <laughs> mean, we had to take the kids to, to uh, preschool, my son, every day. We had to go to Waimanalo for the, for the mail, And obviously shopping. So we, you know, even even the girls, they drove it all the time. You know, the wives was uh, it was it was quite quite the experience.
0: And so, what was it like going up there this past trip? You know, did you see a lot of whales?
2: Oh oh yeah, we saw a lot of whales. The the uh, Coast Guard base, Sand Island, the 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 navigation team. uh, uh, There's I believe there's six six gentlemen on that team. They were, they were unbelievable. They took us up in a van. They took photos and everything. And, uh, I mean, they treated us like royalty. It was just a a great time. We went right down to the lighthouse, inside the light, inside the lens. Oh, and by the way, that, that lens is the second largest lens in the, in the world. Really? It's, it's the first largest lens in the United States. It was hand cut and polished in 1887 in France. It was featured in the, I believe, the 1904 World's Fair in Chicago. And then the the uh, United States bought it and they erected it in 1909. And believe it or not, that road wasn't there then. They scaled everything up the side of that cliff. Amazing. That's Yeah, that's hard to believe. <laughs> But that's how it was erected, everything up that side of that cliff.
0: And while you were here in Hawaii, you also uh, had to go and visit some of the other lighthouses across the state.
2: Yes, when when they automated the light station, I was transferred to the 8th Navigation Team. And we serviced all the lighthouses and shore structures in Hawaii on all the islands. So I got to see just about every part. Of every island uh, there was. Um, Actually, Molokini, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yes. That little teeny island, they used to lower us in a helicopter. We have a light structure on the very top of that. They would lower us in a helicopter to service that light. Uh, That was one interesting spot. Another interesting place was um, Kalapapa, the leopard colony. We used to go there and spend one or two nights uh servicing that light uh that was very interesting but oh boy on lanai we would rent four-wheel drive vehicles and uh go to areas on lanai that probably nobody's ever been to or very very few and that was like that on all the islands uh most yes sure structures are in crazy places that you really can't get to
0: and you were also but, on uh, Kauai.
2: oh yeah i was on Kauai many times i was on every island i spent three years on the uh aids navigation team oh well, roughly every six months we would service all the islands and if something was wrong we had a big problem with uh vandals shooting out lights uh stuff like that just destroying them so we get emergency calls we have to go out and, and service lights so yeah i traveled a lot on all all the islands.
0: Is there a fun fact about any of the lighthouses that you recalled that you'd like to share with our listeners?
2: A fun fact? (laughs) Yeah. I think the most fun was going to Lanai because we had some really out-of-the-way places. They gave us money for, for food and hotels, but to save money back then, we would bring a tent, cooking utensils, little grill, and we would out on the beaches, like I said, very isolated, nobody around. I think that was, that was one of the fun things we really enjoyed. Same way on Molokai, uh, we had lights where we would have to see the owner of the ranch get keys to their gates to get to our lights, and uh, we would do the same thing there.
0: But I can imagine, yep. you know, kind of the wilderness, rugged, remote, oh, yeah. beautiful.
2: Yeah, oh yeah. Other than that, we had a lot of a lot of a lot of great times traveling. On Lanai, we'd get out of the pineapple docks. They would load us up with pineapples. <laughs> I mean, we'd come back and we had pineapples for the entire neighborhood. So yeah, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun and
1: that
0: was Ron Chanfarini, excuse me, Chanfarani. Uh, he was the final lighthouse keeper in Hawaii. Makapu Lighthouse was the last to be automated. Uh, Chan Ferrani lived in housing at the facility with his young family. He has fond memories of life at the Lighthouse, including the delivery of a bouquet of flowers for his wife from Hawaii 5 actor Jack Lord. The TV star sent them after filming for the series blocked the road to the Lighthouse for a time. It had delayed the couple bringing home one of their twins from the hospital. Uh, uh, Chan Ferrani saved newspaper clippings and photos and was grateful to revisit the Lighthouse last month. Well, that wraps it up for us today tomorrow a Maui woman shares her dramatic story of being rescued in the ocean as we come up on the six-month anniversary of the line of wildfires call our talkback line 808-792-8217 share your thoughts about our recovery or your experience email us at talkback at radio.org You can also find The Conversation on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.